Hey, Brother Dan. Notice the title of our lesson. What's it say? The matchless one. What does that mean? Say it again. Okay. It can't be matched. It's right. Can't be equaled. Cannot be matched. So we're talking about the matchless one. And I would, I would think if it's, if it's matchless, it's got to be at least one, right? But who's the one we're talking about? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Our family theme this morning is that uh, Jesus Christ is above all. Our objective is to submit ourselves to Christ as Lord of all of our life. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Our text begins at chapter, verse 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. We've got three key truths this morning. Number one, that believers keep growing in knowing and living out God's will. Now notice the two there, knowing and living out God's will. Two separate things, both connected together. Second key truth, Christ is preeminent over all creation, and Lord willing, we'll see how that pans out from the Word of God. The third key truth, what great news, Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Thank God for that. Under our Bible basis this morning, things we should know, we are encouraged to memorize uh, the last part of verse 16 and verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, which is part of our study text this morning, where Paul said all things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist. All things are created by him and for him, and by him, Christ, all things consist. That will be part of our study text this morning. So where does our lesson today fit in the overall story of the Bible? Well, probably around A.D. 61 and 62, while Paul was under house arrest, he writes this letter uh, to the believers at Colossae. It's also, the fact of the matter is, uh, there was teaching going on in Colossae that there was a deeper spiritual knowledge that people needed to have. And, uh, in fact, they believed that God was so holy... He could never be involved in the material world. So he had to go beyond that. Well, Paul writes this letter to refute that kind of teaching and to encourage them to grow in their Christian walk and their maturity. I'll get started this morning. A uh, couple of questions we're going to begin with as far as uh, getting our mind at least turned toward our lesson today. What are, what are some of the things people do? What are some of the things people do in order to please someone they care about. What are some of the things people do in order to please someone they care about? Do what? That's true. Hold your tongue and one of them. Okay. Somebody else. What are some things we do in order to please someone we care about? Say what now? If we do, that's right. We show our appreciation in a lot of ways, don't we? And the reason is because we care about them. So what kinds of things then makes us want to please someone? What kind of things makes us want to please someone? Okay, yeah, there you go. Somebody else. 
Normally it's because they've been nice to us. They've showed care for us, whatever. Uh, a lot of different ways. Now today, Lord willing, uh, we're going to find out that no, most of the time, in almost every case, people want to please those they love. They want to please those that have been very good to them. I want to suggest today no one has been good to us as Christ has been. We ought to want to please him in how we live our lives. Paul is writing this letter, I said earlier, to the church at Colossae. Colossae was a town about 100 miles uh, upriver north of Ephesus. It was located in what we now know as modern-day Turkey. At one uh, time during years ago, before even Paul became on the scene, it was an important river town. The Colossians manufactured a beautiful dark wool cloth, and it was called Colossianum, and that's why this city became famous. But the problem was, shortly later on in their history, another city began to grow, Laodicea, and they also produced another kind of cloth and became competitors with those at Colossae. So their, their business began to diminish about 100 years before Christ. Also, uh, there were actually three towns in close proximity there. Uh, you had Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and in AD 17, uh, they were destroyed by earthquake, and again in AD, in AD 60. And it's interesting, they were rebuilt after the earthquake. But Colossae never regained its prominence. Uh, by the end of A.D. 400, the city no longer existed. Now again, even though by Paul's day the glory of that Colossae had failed, without a doubt they, made, they kept a relationship with the city of Ephesus. Now as far as we know, the Apostle Paul had never been to the church of Colossae. I think about that. Nor had he ever been to the church at Laodicea. But please understand, they were important to Paul because what happened was there was a Colossian known as Epaphras uh, who had been led by Christ probably while he was in Ephesus during Paul's three-year missionary journey there. And Epaphras goes back to Colossae and he, he begins a church. Isn't that how the gospel works? You tell one, they tell somebody else. And that's exactly how the church at Colossae began. But I said earlier, the church began to fall prey to false teaching and of this higher spiritual realm. And thank God, thank God, Epaphras understood the importance of doctrine. And when he realized what was going on, he goes to Rome to see Paul to get some advice on how to handle this situation. So Paul writes this letter. Uh, to the church at Colossae to counter that false doctrine and help them to grow in the true gospel. I need to ask an important question today. How many gospels are there? Just one. The pure, true gospel. Our first key truth this morning is that believers keep growing in knowing, that's the mental uh, part of it, but also living out God's will. That's the practical part of it. Take what we know and live it out. 
Let's pick it up in verse 9, Colossians 1. Somebody read verses 9 through 14, please. Thank you, Dan. Now, by the way, just uh, just so you know, I didn't pull out of thin air that Paul had probably never been to Colossae. Uh, next week we'll be in chapter 2, even with the first part of it, not part of our study text. But Paul mentioned in the early part of chapter 2 that he had never seen the face of those at Colossae or Laodicea. But my question is, uh, and, and Dan, thanks for reading this, but I, I, Paul says, since we heard of that, we don't cease to pray for you. How could Paul have a heart for people he never met? Think about that. But does he? Absolutely. Now, it's interesting. Epaphras had come to Paul, and he told Paul of the faith of the believers there at Colossae. And Paul was thrilled about it. Now, folks, let me, let me say this. We need to be excited about God's people. To know that people are coming to faith in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is praying for them. He is praying, and he's praying specifically. Notice that. He has a certain thing he's asking about. He's also praying intentionally, and he's also praying spiritually. Now, notice what he says. He said, I have two main hopes for you. Number one, that you have full knowledge of God's will. Number two, that you have spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, Paul was concerned about what was going on at the church at Colossae. And his, his, his prayers were for those, for their lives there, and he wanted their lives to be worthy of the Lord. How many know it's a privilege to be born again? How many know if you're saved, you've been called by God? And how many know that once we're saved, we ought to walk worthy of that calling. That's exactly what, what Paul is warning uh, for these believers at Colossae to do, to walk worthy of that vocation to which they have been called. Now, my question would be, whether it be that then in Paul's day, talking about the Colossians, or us, do you think God wants us to live sloppy lives? Do you think he wants us to be lazy in our walk with God? I don't think so. And we shouldn't, based on what Christ has done for us. Everything that God has invested in our lives. Now remember, and let me ask it in the way of a question, what do we bring to God to help him out? 
nothing. Simply to the cross I cling. Christ has invested so much in our lives. And so it ought to be natural to seek to please God in everything we do. And in verse 10, Paul lets us know what pleases God. And that's simply growing in the knowledge of God and bearing fruit in every good work. Now remember, Peter said to desire the sincere milk of the word that we might grow thereby. Now keep in mind, certainly we're saved and will ever be the moment we receive Christ. But does God, does God want us to stay stagnant? Does he want us to stay babies in Christ? No. We're to grow in that knowledge. We're to continue to bear fruit in our lives. Now that's important for us because the bottom line is, and what was true for the believers at Colossae, the bottom line is this is also true for us. They would, they would come to know more as they were doing. So Paul says, grow in your knowledge and continue to bear fruit. Now, don't, don't separate those two. They are intertwined. Because as we grow in our knowledge, we're going to bear fruit. And as you bear fruit, guess what? Your knowledge is going to grow. They work together. They work together hand in hand. I uh, had to go to the doctor on Friday for a blood test. And uh, I always ask them, people sticking a needle in my arm, have you done this before? And she said, don't worry, I watched a video on YouTube last night. <laughs> now, I assume she was kidding, okay, and she did a good job, all right? But isn't it true? Now, there are some things, there are some things in life that we should study before we try it. I don't know, uh, if you're going to have a guy do brain surgery on you, would you want to think he studied about it first? But some things you just have to try. Like riding a bicycle, right? <laughs> and, and God wants us to learn by studying His Bible. God wants us to learn by taking in His Word every day. But He also wants us to learn by doing what He tells us to do. He wants us to learn by being faithful and obedient to the Word of God. So it works hand in hand. Yes, we have the Word of God and we learn from the Word of God, but we also learn by being faithful to God. Now, I want to touch on something this morning I mentioned a little bit about Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras was evidently concerned about doctrine. Now, by the way, what is doctrine? Anybody know? Teaching. And basically, we're talking about Bible doctrine. What does the Bible teach? And most scholars believe it was doctrinal issues that led him to travel to Rome to find Paul and say, Paul, here's what's going on. What advice do you have for me? We're living in a time in the church 
For a lot of people, doctrine doesn't matter anymore. I want to tell you, folks, when people tell me doctrine doesn't matter, I know right then they're in trouble spiritually. Doctrine definitely matters. Had a family some years ago, quite a few years ago now, visited our church. They loved our church. And they loved our preaching and our teaching. And for whatever reason, they decided to go to another church. I'll not name the church. not in our area. It's in northern Kentucky, but I know uh, the denomination. And I called him, and he told me they were going to go. I said, do you realize, do you realize that they teach you're saved by baptism? He said, I don't care. Is that important or not, folks? Sure, it's important. But the sad thing is a lot of people don't care about doctrine. Just make me feel good. Now, here's the thing. What we believe is important. Doctrine involves ideas from the Word of God, and ideas also have consequences. Because out of our ideas is where our belief and our actions come in this world. Over and over again throughout history, it is shown that faulty doctrine, wrong doctrine, always leads to wrong living. Also, wrong doctrine gives a wrong testimony. And wrong doctrine will lead to faulty worship of God. So, doctrine is important. That's why I stress all the time, folks, know why you believe what you believe. And please, please, don't tell somebody you believe because your preacher said it. Tell somebody you believe it because God's Word says it. It's from the Word of God. Doctrine is very, very important. And I realize there are some who say, well, you know, uh, you know, doctrine divides. And yes, it does. Because doctrine can both be exclusive as well as inclusive. We have to know what the Bible said. Because the truth of the matter is, the very doctrine that distinguishes true belief from faulty thinking also brings us together in a very, very powerful powerful way because of the doctrine of the scriptures it unites us with every other christian of every age of every language of every people folks we need to know what the bible says and yes doctrine is important and again i mentioned early on that was what bothered uh Epaphras because uh he was concerned that somebody was bringing in a false doctrine into the church, and he goes to Paul to find out what should he do about that. Any question about that, what I just said? But folks, doctrine is very, very, very important. That's also interesting. Uh, Paul, as he prayed for these, the Colossians, uh, he said, it, it, your good work would also include patience. Um, and Paul says that's going to come through God's uh, own power. God will provide that for us. Uh, God will produce joy 
and gratitude in your heart. And the question is, why should we be thankful? Why not? Look what God has done for us. And Paul is saying to the church of Colossae, look what God has done from you. He's translated you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of his son. God has freed us from darkness. He brought us into the kingdom of light. Now our inheritance, and Paul said to the church of Colossae, your inheritance is also with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Now, by the way, Christ is the son Jesus loves, the one who redeemed us through faith in him. Our sins are forgiven. How many are glad you're saved this morning? How many are glad for faith in Christ? Let's apply it. Keep growing. Never stop. Keep growing in the knowledge of God's will and make it practical. Live your life worthy of Him. So what do you think living a life worthy of Christ would look like? What would it look like? What would living a life worthy of Christ look like? What do we seek to do? Ought to please Him in what? Yeah, everything. All His will, all God wants. Uh, we, we, a life that pleases Him uh, would be uh, bearing much fruit through good works. We need to obey His Word. We need to walk closer to Him. All of those is what it looks like to walk worthy of God. So Paul says, he prays to the Colossae church, and for us, applies to us as well. Paul says, keep growing in the knowledge of God's will. How can we grow in God's will, in his knowledge of that? How can we grow in knowledge? Read the Word of God. Stay in the Word of God. And by the way, God will show you what he wants. And put in practice what we already know. So first of all, as believers, we're to keep growing in knowing, but also living out God's will. Second of all, Christ is preeminent over all creation. Let's read verses 15 through 20. Anybody want to volunteer? Thank you, Jordan. Um, Jordan, I know your heart for God's Word. When you read something like that, and I know you believe it, does it amaze you? Yeah. This is probably, in fact, by, even by theologians, considered as some of the most important verses in all the New Testament. Because right here, what you just read, Jordan, firmly establishes the deity of Christ. Now think about that. The deity of Christ. 
From Paul's letter in Philippians, we learn that Jesus was was equal to God. But not only is he equal to God, he is God. It's interesting. In the Greek, the verb is present tense. And it means, it describes his position, the position of Jesus Christ, now and forever. Now and forever. Jesus Christ is God. That's interesting. In our text we just read, Paul writes that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word, but it's the word we get our word icon from. You ever ever hear of icons lately? Now think about that. It's a word we get our modern word icon from. Now it's interesting. In the Greek, it was more, meant a lot more than just a mere picture or a collection of pixels on a computer screen. The idea was it denoted an exact portrayal of something. An exact portrayal of something or someone. Paul says, now remember, here's, let me back up again. Epaphras had gone to Paul in Rome. Paul, here's what's going on. Help me deal with this. So Paul writes this letter to the church of Colossae. Letting them know, basically, that there's nothing or no one better than Christ. You don't need a superior knowledge. All you need is Christ. So Paul says, no, first of all, That Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Now don't don't misunderstand that. He's not saying that God created Jesus first. He says he's the firstborn. We'll explain it in a moment. Because Jesus, now don't forget this, is the iconic image of the true invisible God. Let me stop here for just a second. Get our minds on on straight. Why has no one ever seen God? Okay, it means what? He's invisible. Right. He's spiritual and he is invisible. Jesus is the icon. image of the true invisible God. And because God has no beginning, guess what Jesus has? No beginning. Because God has no ending, guess what Jesus has? No ending. He's the iconic 
image of the true invisible God. Now, in that culture, when Paul, during that time when Paul lived, the firstborn of the family uh, had rights that no other person in the family had. Christ has rights over all of creation. And I couldn't help, Jordan, as you read that a moment ago to remind me, look at the list there. Look at the list he had preeminence over. All of that he has preeminence over. So the question I would ask is, why would Jesus have such rights over that? Why would he have such supremacy? And the answer is easy. Who created it? He did. And who did he create it for? Himself. <laughs> what a God. Now, now, don't, don't miss this. In spite of what some in the science world teach us, how many realize there was no gradual progression from divine existence to material existence? Think about that. Jesus brought it all into existence. So what did he use to make it out of? Nothing. (laughs) Can I ask a question? Has anybody here ever done that? Made something out of nothing? But God did. Jesus did. He's the iconic image of the true invisible God. And according to what you just read, Jordan, Jesus brought it all into existence. Not just the material world, but also the spiritual world. And not only that, not only did he create it, guess who holds it together? Jesus does. He is before all things, Paul said, and by him all things consist. He created it and he holds it all together. Now, by the way, God sort of put an exclamation point on the supremacy of Christ when he raised him from the dead. And Jesus, being the firstborn, he was the first to do so And not die a second time. So he rose from the dead to reign over all the material world, but also every spiritual entity, whoever it is. Verse 19 reminds us that God was pleased. God was pleased. First of all, he was pleased. To have his complete fullness to dwell in Christ. Let that sink in. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word dwell mean? Anybody know? Have any idea about that? What's it mean? 
to live. Okay. And it does. Do you dwell in a tent? Do what? For how long? You know how long I want to? None. (laughs) Zero. Zilch. But normally, and Dan, you're right, you can. People have through the years. Normally, a tent's a temporary place. But the word dwell means permanent. And so, God was pleased to permanently, share your word, live in Christ. Not a temporary state. Now, Dan, I suspect, knowing you, you don't mind camping out once in a while. You probably spent some nights in a tent. Pam and I did it the first time we did it. God, we loved it so much. We haven't done it since. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, I dwell at home. That's my permanent place. And God's fullness, get this, folks, is at home in Christ. What did Jesus tell Philip in John 14? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have seen the Father. So number one, God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Second of all, and I love this, God was pleased to reconcile sinful people like me. Back to him through Christ. Whoa, what a God. What a God. And through Christ, God has come among us to live among us, to heal the separation our sin had created. And he did it for us. Now, by the way, this passage in no wise teaches universal salvation. It's only for those who place their faith in Christ. But understand, God came to heal that separation. Heal that separation. Paul said, look, I want you to know, Colossian believers, I want you to know, no matter what you've heard, it's through Jesus Christ alone, not any other spirit being, no other special revelation. It's only through Christ that you have salvation. Only through him. Now it's interesting. As a child of God, it's important to remember that we are not just merely teaching spiritual truth about a good moral example. We are helping people to glorify the creator of the universe. And that's what it's all about. Jesus, let, Jesus said, let your light shine, that, the glory, that God might be glorified. Now remember, we've all built things, put things together. I've built several houses in my lifetime, room additions. you built things. Maybe a playhouse, maybe just with pillows for your daughter, a little room or a a little place to play or whatever, temporary place. But you made it out of everything you had, something you had there, right? But can you imagine, can you imagine building the very wood? 
Can you imagine building the very fabric? Can you imagine building the very planet that produced them? I can only imagine that. Does Jesus have to imagine that? Why? He did it. He did it. Some scholars believe that what Paul wrote in verses 15 through 20 may have been the remnants of an early Christian hymn. And we're not sure about that. But if it was, it shows me how deeply uh, theological they were. Now, again, one scholar I read this morning, he mentioned also uh, Paul had written other things to this degree. So he was very uh, able to write such a poetic thing as well. But But the bottom line is this. The good news is we are allowed to interact with the power of a very complex God. And we do it through the iconic image of Jesus Christ. The iconic image of the invisible God. Also, remember this. And we talked about this in Isaiah a week or two ago. When people saw Jesus on this earth, did his head glow? No. Did he have a halo around his head? No. Did he walk this high off the ground? No. So when Jesus was on this earth, what did he look like? Ordinary man. Ordinary is you. The woman at the well recognized him as a Jewish man. And you think about that. He had no impressive appearance. He appeared him, he appeared to be weak. <laughs> and, and we live in the world where people forget the ordinary is important sometimes. In fact, he was one time in Matthew's gospel. They referred to him as the carpenter's son. So he didn't look any different. You're right, Dan, like an ordinary man. But his miracles, miracles are certainly enough proof of God's power at work. Jesus told the Pharisees, If you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. Believe my miracles. Now, believe it or not, I'm, well, I know, I confess, I'm computer illiterate almost. But I've learned something about icons. I have several on my smartphone, and everyone's smarter than I am. But I want you to realize something important here. They seem to be frail and weak. But once you open it up, you open up a world of knowledge. And I want you to know, like a digital icon, what appears to be frail and weak, Jesus contained God's great power. God was pleased to dwell in him. And God's power is perfectly at home in him, in this very ordinary carpenter 
from Nazareth. Apply it. Give Christ preeminence over everything else. Okay, what does it mean that something or someone has preeminence? What does that mean? If someone is is preeminent, what does that mean? Say it again. About everything else. Dan, what did you say? Yeah, you're honored. And they are. Christ is preeminent. So my question is, does he, should we give him preeminence? Yes. Make him our highest priority. Make his word very the most important to us. And certainly, not just know his word, but submit ourselves to it. First key truth, we keep growing and knowing and living out God's will. Number two, Christ is preeminent over all creation. Number three, and I love this, Christ died to reconcile us to God. Anybody want to read verses 21 through 23? And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Verse 1 says, You that were sometimes alienated. Who is that? Say it again. Wait a minute. He was writing the Colossians. Doesn't matter. Just as they were separated from God, so were we. We were separated. And Christ came to bring us back together again. I'm reading through the book of Job right now, my daily Bible reading. And one of my favorite parts where Job said, oh, that there were days of Someone who could lay their hand up on the shoulder of God and the shoulder of man and bring them together again. How many know Jesus is that one? He came to reconcile us back to God. Why were we enemies? Because of our mind and by our wicked works. Our mind is our thoughts. Guess where works start from? Our mind. Starting our mind, going to works, and the wicked works produce what? More wicked thoughts. It's a never-ending cycle. And how many know none of us, no one can break free from that on our own power. We need the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of Christ at work in our lives. We need the iconic, invisible enemy of God at work in our lives. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he gave his life. And notice this. One of these days, I don't know about you, but he's still working on me. I got a lot of wrinkles, a lot of blemishes. But one of these days, he's going to present me holy, unblameable, 
and unreprovable in his sight. Now, by the way, how many know God sees you warts and all? You know that? But the fact of the matter, when he looks at us, he didn't see us. He sees his righteousness applied to our lives through Jesus Christ. Thank God for the reconciling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you're saved this morning? Aren't you glad that God cared enough to dwell in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's stand together. Next week, chapter 2. We're going to find out again where true life is. Father, we love you so much. We are so thankful, Lord, for what you've done for us. And God, help us because of what we know and what you've done for us to live lives that are worthy of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God.